Revelation chapter 15. In chapter 14, in the second half of the chapter, we have seven personages who appear. Three angels, then one like the Son of Man, and then three angels again. And what we have from these are both the blessing and the cursing of the truth. Or as the first angel proclaims it, the eternal gospel. So I think we may make the mistake of thinking only in terms of the positive or the negative and fail to remember that there are two sides to the truth, and these are the two sides, both blessing and cursing. On the one hand, the eternal gospel brings life to those who obey. On the other, it brings judgment, which, while it is seen in terms of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, it is seen as eternal, forever and ever, no rest day or night. On the one hand, harvest means the bringing in of the church, God's people. And on the other hand, the harvest means the judgment of God and the great winepress of God's wrath. Today, uh, again, we are faced with two sides of God's dealing with humanity. Uh, we see this in the deliverance of his people and the destruction of his enemies. Let's read the first four verses uh, first and, and look at them. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The chapter begins and with a, sort of a title for the rest of the book. Verse number one sort of is a superscription. It sort of tells us, uh, it introduces what is going to follow in the rest of the book. He sees another great and marvelous sign in, this, in the heavens. This is the third time in the book of Revelation that there has been a sign in the heaven. The first two were in chapter 12. The first verse, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And then two verses later, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. What happens after these first two that we see in chapter 12, chapters 12, 13, and 14, is sort of the war, the battle that occurs between these two great signs, if you wish. The woman, her seed, her offspring, the dragon with the first beast, the second beast, and those who take the mark of the beast. Now, as John writes it, we're coming to the end of things, the last plagues, because it is the completion of God's wrath. 
if you've been with us, you, you will know that he's not talking about the completion of God's wrath in human history, but within the scope of what he's been talking about, the judgments that are coming on those who have broken the covenant. And as been the case previously with the trumpets, we have seven angels, and they bring with them seven plagues. In verse number two, the vision proper begins. And either after what we see in chapter 14 or before what will follow in chapter 15 and the chapters afterwards, what we have described is a scene of worship. It begins with something familiar to us from chapter 4. John sees what looks like a sea of glass. However, I think John has something else in mind, as can be seen from the rest of the section. I believe that the imagery from this passage comes from the book of Exodus. Not exclusively so, but I think that is the primary focus as he writes this passage. It isn't simply the Song of Moses. There is more. For example, I think a lot of people don't know that when Moses went on Sinai, he took not only his brother Aaron with him and Joshua, but Aaron's two sons and 70 elders from Israel. And there they met with God. They saw the God of Israel, we are told. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. That is a sea of glass. So, very much from the book of Exodus. Ezekiel also had a similar vision, but I think the tie is to the passage in Exodus, as we will see. In John's vision, there is something different, though, from Exodus and from what we've seen in chapter 4, and that is that the sea of glass is mixed with fire. In chapter 4, it was clear as crystal. In Exodus, it was clear as the sky itself. I think we could safely assume that if this sea of glass is mixed with fire, then it is no longer clear. It is, it is no longer that, something that we can see through. But what is John trying to tell us? What is the significance of the fire? It has been suggested that fire speaks of judgment, and so that John is speaking of judgment. I tend to think that it rather refers to the color of fire. That now we no longer have something that is clear, but we have something that has color. And while there are many colors in fire, it is often seen as red. And so what we have here is a sea of red. It's clear, but there's fire there giving it color. Now we've just read about a river of blood, if you wish, at the end of chapter 14. How that the blood flowed as high as the horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. A sea of blood, if you wish, a river of blood, but something that is red. Now we have something that is a sea and it is red because of the fire. It is a red sea, if you wish. And I think John is drawing us back to the book of Exodus to see things in the light of Israel's experience in the Exodus. The imagery continues in that if you look in verse number two, we see not only the sea that is red, but we see people who are standing beside the sea. And they are getting ready to sing. And this should clearly remind us of what happened with Israel. They pass through the Red Sea. The sea closes up on Pharaoh and his army. They stand on the seashore and there they sing the song of Moses. And we'll see more of this in a minute. Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 10 the passing through the Red Sea as a baptism of God's people. I think one could make the case and the connection that the tribulation that John is describing that 
the first century Christians are going to go through will be their baptism of fire. But they will, as Israel did, end up on the other shore and there they will sing praises to God. Israel went through the Red Sea. John's generation will go through a time of great tribulation. But I find it striking that as is in the case, or as is the case with Israel and the Red Sea, these people are seen as victorious. Israel was seen as victorious. But if you think about it, if you remember this story, what exactly did Israel do in order to defeat Pharaoh's army? I think one could say nothing. They did nothing. It is God who closed the Red Sea on them. But that's not the whole story. The fact is, they believed God, they trusted God, they obeyed Him, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and went to the other side. But they are seen as victorious. In the same way, God's people here are described as victorious. And this may seem troubling to us because what have they done to be victorious? In fact, the reason that they're on the other side of the sea of glass is because they're dead. They've been killed by the dragon and his beast in the great tribulation. That's why they're in heaven now. I may, That doesn't sound like victorious to me. That sounds like someone who was defeated, someone who was overcome. But the book of Revelation reveals to us that things are not always as they seem. That the Lamb is victorious and so are his people. And so he tells us here, how were they victorious? They were victorious over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his name. How were they victorious? They did not believe his lies. They did not worship his image. They did not receive his mark, which was the number of his name. One could argue that like Israel, they did nothing in order to be victorious except to trust God and to believe him and to obey him. They did not believe the lies. They did not worship the beast and they did not take his number. And many of them paid with their lives. But John describes them as victorious. And what do victorious people do? What do God's people do? Well, they worship, they give glory to God, and they sing songs. I have in my notes here that, although it may go without saying, it should be said to remind us that worship is directed to God and God alone. For he alone is worthy and therefore we worship him as the one who is worthy. And the reason I say this is because we will see they are going to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. That even though they are victorious, even though they are overcomers, they are not singing a verse of we're number one. Look at what we've done. We're victorious. Look at us. They are not taking any credit for themselves. They ascribe it to God. And you know what? Seen in this light, that seems entirely appropriate. Because we would say they did nothing to be victorious. It was all God's doing. 
And so they sing these two songs, a song of Moses and a song of the Lamb. But what are these songs? Where, where are they found? Let's look at them individually. First of all, the song of Moses. There are at least two songs of Moses in the Old Testament. Two different songs that are referred to as the song of Moses. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 15. This is after Israel passed through the Red Sea and they're on the seashore and they sing the song of Moses. That's usually what people associate with this expression, the song of Moses. But there's another one found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. This I find even more interesting. Uh, it's an intriguing song. I also find it intriguing that we don't usually remember it. <laughs> we like the one after the Red Sea. We're not so crazy, I think, about the one in Deuteronomy 32. Um, this is what God said to Moses and Joshua before uh, Moses wrote his song. Write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites. Have them sing it so that it may be a witness against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promise on oath to their forefathers, and when they, have eat, when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. See, both songs are rooted in history. Both proclaim the salvation that God provides. And it is his victory in the world. So which song is it that, that John is writing here? Is it the one after the Red Sea, that it's wonderful, look at what God has done? Or is it the song that is a witness against Israel when they break the covenant? Actually, if you look at the words, neither one. What we find uh, in verse number four, uh, verses three and four, don't come from either song. I think John's point is not to sort of transpose that song from the Old Testament and bring it into the book of Revelation, but to make the connection. To show that God's liberating of his people, the victory, his victorious people in heaven stand in continuity with God's victorious people at the side of the Red Sea. And their deliverance is celebrated in song, that God has delivered them um, but I think you could make a case that you don't have to pick either or. I think it's both and. I think that John, God through John, very wisely doesn't give us the words of the song. He simply says the song of Moses. And then we're left to think, well, is it, is it the Red Sea or is it the one near the end of Moses' life? It's both. It's a song of victory for God's people. It's a song of witness against those who have broken the covenant. Two things at the same time. If you wish, in the first song, God's people are standing on the shore. Israel is standing on the shore of the Red Sea. Their enemies have been defeated. In the second song, God's people are in heaven. And on the other side of the glass sea is Israel who has broken the covenant. And they are about to experience God's wrath. In the first, they are delivered from the Egyptians. In the second, Israel is Egypt. And that's no stretch because if you remember, in chapter 11, Jerusalem is called Egypt. And, and John tells us this is figurative, but it's, it's there that Jerusalem is Egypt. One last thing in this regard. 
The last words of the Song of Moses found in Deuteronomy 32 go this way. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. What is the Song of the Lamb? Well, I think this refers to what we've just studied in chapter 14, when the Lamb is seen as standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. And what do the 144,000 do? They sing a new song. This song celebrates what the Lamb has done, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, and his coming judgment. And by the way, just to remind you, the very image of Lamb, the Lamb, comes from the Passover, the Passover Lamb. Remember when the plagues came in the tenth plague, they were to take a lamb and kill it and put its blood on the doorpost. And if the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over. They would not experience this. That's the imagery of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. It, again, it takes us back to what God did in Egypt when he delivered his people with a mighty hand. Without the song of the Lamb, if you wish, there would be no song of Moses. Without the Lamb being whose blood was shed, Israel would not have escaped the plague. They would not have escaped Egypt. But because we have the song of the Lamb, we have the song of Moses. And I think what John tells us is that there is harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not Moses versus Jesus. They're not in opposition. It's not the law versus the gospel. There is a continuity between God's dealing with his people and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Do you notice here that Moses is referred to as... A song of Moses, the servant of God. This is not an insignificant term. You may remember uh, back when we studied the book of Job. When Satan goes before God, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And we saw then, this is not a light thing. This is an awesome title to be given. Well, now in verses 3 and 4, we have the song. But what does it say and, and what does it mean? What we find is a tremendous blend. It's a wonderful blend of Old Testament passages that praise God for his perfection. God's perfection as seen in his delivering his people time and time again. And by his judging his enemies. It begins, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. As John records this, I don't think the saints are singing uh, sort of a general statement about what, what a wonderful thing God has done, generally speaking. He's created the world, he sustains the world, that if you could watch the sun go down or watch the moon rise, a full moon, that you would just say, what God has done is great and marvelous. It is. Those things are indeed marvelous. But what is envisioned here is God's deliverance of his people and the judgments that he is now going to pour out in his wrath. It isn't God's work in creation. It is God's work in judgment. And he is capable of doing these things because he is the Lord God Almighty. A term or phrase, a name of God that we find from the Old Testament. Just and true are your ways, King of the Ages. That the saints are not singing of God's work in creation and providence is seen, I think, in this statement. 
that God's ways are true and just as demonstrated in how he delivers the church and how he destroys his enemies. And the fact that he is the king of the ages establishes that he can do as he pleases. He can save his people. He can judge those who rebel against him. In chapter 16, the next chapter, the third angel, uh, as you know, the third angel pours out uh, the bowl of judgment and an angel in charge of the water says, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, True and just are your judgments. And so this song that they are singing focuses on God's judgments that are about to be unleashed on those who have broken his covenant. The song continues, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? I think, in other words, who will not be converted and who will not serve God, worship him, and obey him? Do you remember the words of the eternal gospel that the first angel in chapter 14 said? Fear God and give him glory. Who will not fear? Who will not give glory to your name? This is what it means to be a child of God. To fear God and to give glory to his name. I think to be a child of God requires that we fear him and that we glorify and worship him. And, and why do we do this? The song continues, For you alone are holy. We began our worship today by singing of God's holiness. Very much the language of the Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy is Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. But God's holiness in the Old Testament is not so much his ethical qualities, that he's sinless, perfect, you know, perfection as such, as much as he is uniquely majestic and he is transcendent. In modern terms, particularly in the academy, he is other. We are here, he is other. He is transcendent. He is above us. And yet, for all his transcendence, for all his unapproachableness, if you wish, this is exactly the reason why the nations are converted. If you look at the next lines, all nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After we fear God, after we give him glory, what are we to do? We are to worship him, for he alone is holy. John envisions the gospel going across the globe as indeed it has, in part because of the destruction of Jerusalem. The church had begun to scatter, had already, Paul had already gone into Europe, but Jerusalem was still sort of the hub. This was still the mother church. And with the coming judgment in 70 A.D., it no longer could be. And we see in many ways the church decentralize and scatter all over the planet and the eternal gospel is preached. That's the first half of this chapter. Now let's look at verses 5 through 8. After this I looked and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle, the testimony was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. 
Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now the the scene shifts. It is no longer God's people on the edge of the sea that is red. It is now the temple which represents the presence of God, the tabernacle of the testimony. There's something else going on here. We've already seen the temple mentioned before and the altar and just all the furniture that we see in the temple. But you notice here that it is not only the temple, but the tabernacle of the testimony. The tabernacle was the portable house of worship, if you wish, the tent that they would carry around with them. The temple was the permanent structure, the first one being built by Solomon. But it's interesting that John doesn't simply say the temple, which is the tabernacle, but it is the tabernacle of the testimony. The testimony in the book of Exodus refers to the law given to the Jews. The Ten Commandments are referred to as the testimony. Let me read to you from Exodus 31. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. That is, the Ten Commandments form the basis of covenant relationship with God. These aren't simply good ways to live your life, though that is true. One would, live a, one would have a better life if he or she followed the Ten Commandments, but that's not why God gave them. God gave them to his people to say, this is the nature of the world I have created, this is the nature of the world I have put you in. So the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You're not to worship other gods, because those are false gods. And so on down the line, we've seen this before. The commandments are the basis of the covenant. Well, from this which represents God's presence and God's covenant with Israel come seven angels who bear with them seven plagues. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not what I would expect to find coming out of the temple of God. Seven angels, yes. Dressed like the Lord Jesus is described in chapter 1 when John has his first vision that he's wearing a white linen robe with a golden sash across his chest. That, that I get. But the seven plagues? And in fact, if you look at it, they are described, they were dressed in clean, shining linen. And I I think we have to be told about the clean because somebody coming out with plagues, I'm not expecting them to be clean. I'm expecting them to be contaminated, to, to be dirty, to be filthy. But these come from the presence of God himself and they come with these seven plagues. And then one of the four living creatures gives each of them a bowl. These bowls are filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The idea of the bowl of God's wrath is similar but not exactly the same as what we saw in chapter 14. The cup of his wrath. In 14.10 we are told that those who worship the beast will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Uh, Here we have the bowl of his wrath. And you're saying bowl, cups, you know, what's the difference? Well, the cups is used with the idea of the wine of God's wrath. The result of the trampling of the grapes. Bowl 
has a very strong Old Testament connection to the sacrificial system. Again, this is part of the story of Exodus I think many people don't know. But when Israel entered into covenant with God, after hearing, you know, Moses read them the law of God, they responded, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then got some young Israelite men, we are told, and they went and they sacrificed young bulls. And they took the blood of the bulls, half of it they sprinkled on the altar, the other half they put in bowls. And then Moses brought the book of the covenant, he read it again to the people of Israel, and they said, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And then Moses took the blood from the bowl and sprinkled it on the people. That was the ratification of the covenant between God and Israel. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We immediately, for me, certain images come to mind. The blood of the covenant, the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. But something far more sinister and dark. I remember the words, his blood be on us and on our children. The blood of the covenant. And since they broke the covenant, the bowl that held the blood of the covenant now is pictured as holding God's wrath. And each of these seven angels has a bowl and they will pour out God's wrath on those who have broken his covenant. If you read in the book of Leviticus, you will find that the blood of the animals was kept in bowls and some of it was sprinkled and the rest of it poured out. I think the image goes back to when the covenant was first ratified between God and Israel. So now we have the seven angels with the seven bowls, the seven plagues. They are ready to pour out God's wrath. But something else is mentioned. There's one more thing. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. There are two times in the Old Testament that we find similar events. When the tabernacle or the temple was so filled with smoke, the presence of God, that no one could go in. The first time was when they first set up the tabernacle. The very first time after they had finished building it, the first time they set it up, the cloud representing the presence of God filled the tabernacle and no one could enter Interestingly enough, eight days later, when the priesthood was inaugurated and they performed all the sacrifices, we are told that fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifices that were offered. The second time that we see this smoke filling the temple is when the first temple was built and Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication. Actually, two things. First, when they brought in the Ark of the Covenant, the priest did, and they put it in the most holy place and God's presence filled the temple and they had to leave. The priests could not do their work for the presence of God. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple and prayed the prayer of dedication, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offerings and the sacrifices, and the priests could not enter the temple because of the glory of God. And so we see, in the Old Testament at least, the temple being filled with the presence of God is a sign of God's gracious presence with his people. But here it is seen as an awesome demonstration or revelation of his wrath against those who have broken the covenant.
And so what we find here in the book of Revelation is deliverance for God's people. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. But those who are not God's people, those who have followed the beast, we have seven angels with seven plagues and seven bowls to pour out God's wrath. And no one, well, God's presence is there in an awesome way and God's wrath will be poured out as he intends. Let's bring this together. In the new covenant, the temple is now the church. Not the building, but the people. And this is demonstrated in a marvelous way on the day of Pentecost. In which, unlike in the Old Testament, when the presence of God filled the temple, now the presence of God through the Holy Spirit comes on his people and is seen as a flame on top of their heads. The presence of God is now with his people As he filled the temple and the tabernacle, so he fills his people. But as John writes, judgment is coming from that which represents the presence of God. It's the language, it's the symbols of the old covenant, temple, tabernacle, bowls. And the judgment of God is such that no one could enter until his wrath has passed. One writer puts it this way. When God pours out his fury, it is fit that even those who stand well with him should withdraw for a little and should restrain from their inquiring looks. All should stand back in profound reverence till by and by the sky become clear again. That is, God's wrath is going to be poured out on those who have broken his covenant. And being human, we're like, what's going on? I want to see. I want to understand. And this writer says, listen, I think John's point is clear. Just back off. Just stand back. In the same way that the priests could not enter the, te- the temple to do their work, we should stand back as God has poured out his wrath on those who have broken his covenant and stand in quiet reverence. You may remember that on the day Jesus was put to death, darkness came over the land. For about three hours. The wrath of God is a terrible thing. If we were to be exposed to it. Out of idle curiosity. Not to experience it. But just to see it. I think it would be more than we would be capable of handling. And so as his wrath is poured out on his son on the cross. It's dark. Darkness covers the land. Even though it is the middle of the day. But because of what Jesus went through, he experienced the wrath of God the Father. If we put our faith in him, we need not experience that wrath. And Jesus has established a new covenant in his blood. We remember this wondrous truth today. One last thing that I would remind you, when I said earlier in the sermon, how is it that we would call Israel victorious over, it, over Egypt? They didn't do anything. God did it all. How is it that those who are seen at the side of the sea of glass are seen as victorious? They didn't do anything. God did it all. Well, wait. In both cases, God gave them commands. 
They trusted him, they obeyed him, and God did the rest. And so it is with us. What is it that we have done to gain favor with God? Absolutely nothing. Do we have the life of God? Do we have the Spirit of God? Yes. And, and how? what exactly did we do to gain that? Nothing. We heard the Word of God, and by His grace and His Spirit, we believed Him and we obeyed Him. But God did it all. We can take no credit for it at all. As the hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Empty hands of faith. It is God who does the work and not us. And that's why we worship him. And that's why they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by the realization that anything of eternal value that we have is not because of anything we have done. You alone are holy. You alone are worthy of worship. You are the one who gives us life. And as Israel could be seen as victorious when you were the one who destroyed Egypt's army, and as those who, are, who die as a result of the great tribulation are seen as victorious, it is because you are the one who has won the victory. So it is in our lives. And I fear we forget this too easily and too quickly. Somehow it slips into our thinking that we are worthy somehow. That's why you saved us, that we were, we were good people and, and people you wanted in your family. And we forget that you did it all. So we bow before you in worship and sing your praises. Your wrath indeed must be a terrible thing. We can't enter the temple, we can't enter your presence until your wrath is passed. Jesus is seen on the cross in darkness because of your wrath. But we give thanks that by your grace, we need not experience your wrath. Jesus has felt the full force of your wrath in our place. And he has established a new covenant. Your law is now written on our hearts. We are now your sons and daughters because of what Jesus did. And today we remember his wonderful obedience, his wonderful gift, and his sacrifice for us. May our hearts be filled with thanksgiving and with joy for this unspeakable gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ten, please, as we sing the doxology together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.